Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, July 1st, 2015. Normal week this week, which means we'll be doing our line episode today. We will be doing a ramblings segment, if you would, but it's not a Genesis. Roseboro's ramblings through Genesis. Details here in a second. Thank you for tuning in or listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we actually use sound biblical hermeneutics, exegesis, and things like that. To compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors, uh, self-proclaimed and styled prophets and prophetesses to see if what they're teaching actually squares with what God's Word says, or if they're teaching false doctrine, deceiving people, drawing away disciples after themselves, and teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. That's kind of a mouthful, if you know what I mean. Now, once a week we do a light episode. Uh, that means that uh, the topic is, it's not that the topic is light, it's just that we deal with one specific lecture or topic or something like that rather than doing a normal episode which kind of covers a plethora of different things all generally on the same topic you know i try to theme every episode of fighting for the faith although i don't always succeed and today we're going to be listening to another one of my lectures we'll call this roseboro's ramblings on the pastoral office part one these uh uh, the two lectures that I delivered at the Reformation Montana Conference, and uh, this will be lecture one this week, lecture two next week, and so we'll just get right to it. Here is Roseboro's Ramblings on the Pastoral Office, delivered at the 2015 Reformation Montana Conference. How many of you have heard the statement, I'm not into organized religion? Now... Now, the snarky part of me, when somebody says I'm not into organized religion, the snarky part of me wants to say, well, are you into disorganized religion? What are you into? We've all heard people say this. And so the answer to the question, you know, are you into disorganized religion, is actually no. And when people say I'm not into organized religion, they're technically not advocating for religious anarchy. Uh, They don't want a completely disorganized religion. What they want is a differently organized religion. Does that make sense? And so the postmodern culture that we find ourselves in is vehemently anti-institutional. And these postmodern ideas have now thoroughly permeated the, the general church culture at large. Institutions bad. Down with the preacher man. Down with the man, right? It's all about getting rid of the institutions. You know, you don't want to be part of the machine or the system. Sounds like something from the 60s. Now, we've also heard people say over and again that the church is a movement. It's not an institution. How many of you heard people talk like this? The church is a movement. It's not an institution. To which I would say, ha, that's not true. Evangelicalism is a movement, and it's not a church, which is an important distinction you need to make when talking about evangelicalism. But the church itself is not a movement. It's an institution. And I'm going to actually spend some time today looking at some biblical texts. So we're going to do some Bible study, Baptist style, via a Lutheran. Because we all know how awkward that is. 
And I'm going to point some things out along the way and kind of work with this basic presupposition. If the church has offices, then like every other institution, it's an institution. And think of it this way. In the United States of America, we have a government organized by the Constitution of the United States. A government is an institution, instituted by God, by the way, which is an important thing. Read Romans if you're a little unclear about that. I know the current office holder may not be like the most likable guy. But the idea here is this, is that we all know by looking at our Constitution that there is this thing called the Office of the President of the United States. And that somebody is nominated and then elected to that office. And the Constitution itself spells out the duties of the office. There's things that he can do, things that he can't do. And I don't want to talk about the current office holder and what he's doing and not doing. Okay, But the idea here is, is that these things are objectively spelled out. And no president of the United States would basically say, you know, listen, I... I know I'm the current office holder and that, you know, but I'm all about promoting the general wel- welfare, but I'm really not into this whole defending and being like the, the commander in chief of the military and protecting us from, you know, internal and external enemies. Yeah, I've decided I'm just going to not do that. We'd, we'd all, I mean, the, the news would be a buzz if, you know, the current office holder decided he was just going to just not do certain things that he's tasked to do according to the office, right? So think of it this way. I'm just trying to prepare your mind. So if you have your Bible, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. I will be using the ESV. I'm assuming Reformed Baptists use the ESV, right? Yeah. I thought that was like one of the indicators that you're a Reformed Baptist is if you use the ESV. Any NIV people, you'll be escorted out of the building. <laughs> So we're starting at verse 15, and we're going to take a look at a story. And the story has to do with the picking of the person to replace Judas. Take a look at what's going on in this text. Here's what it says. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Here's what he said. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled by which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So you'll notice Judas actually had a share in the ministry of Jesus. Do you know there were people that were baptized by Judas? It's true. There were people who were baptized by Judas. And I'm sure everybody after what Judas did thought, oh, no. I was baptized by Judas. Yeah, all of them went to hell. So, no, I, I'm joking about that. But the idea here is, is that it's not the person, it's the office that matters, right? So Judas did baptize people. He had a share in the ministry of Jesus. Now this man, Judas, he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And everyone said, ooh. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is the field of blood. Now watch what he says. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Notice that. The apostolic ministry was a ministry where there were 12 offices. One of them was vacated. And by the way, Peter there let another take his office. He's quoting Psalm 109, verse 8. So they had this idea that there is now a vacant office. And so here are the, here's what they're going to do. They're going to fill the office. There's a vacancy in one of the offices. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So this is qualifications for this filling this office. So it's got to be somebody who was there from the beginning of Jesus's ministry, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. All right. So 
You've got to be there for all of Jesus' ministry from the time Jesus is baptized to the time he's resurrected. You need to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And there were two guys who met the qualifications to filling this office. And they put them forward. One was called Joseph and the other uh, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. So you know, we now know what's going on here. By the way, with these qualifications for filling the apostolic office, how many apostles are there now filling this office on the earth? Zero. So you automatically now know, because you now know what this text is teaching, regarding the apostolic office, that there ain't nobody on the planet who can fill this office. So any church who's talking about living apostles, ah, they're teaching false doctrine. They have a false ecclesiology. You need to just steer clear from them. Plain and simple. So here's how they chose who was going to fill this office. They prayed. And they said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they threw dice. They cast lots. Yep, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Seriously, Vegas decided. Well, actually, God did. They just trusted that God would choose using lots. And so you notice, who is it that they, based on this prayer, believed was filling this office? God, Jesus himself. So there you have it. The apostolic office. Particular duties particular qualifications. And the idea here is this, is that, well, if the church has an apostolic office, how about an office of pastor? Well, let's take a look at one of the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Here's what it says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. You see it? Office of overseer. Overseer is another term for pastor. This is a pastoral epistle. Scripture describes the pastoral office as an office. Now, this is going to, well, cause some problems today. And there's a reason why this is going to cause problems. Because if you think the church is one filled with men who are filling offices and that there are particular duties to those offices. Well, that's different than somebody who's leading a movement. What do movement leaders do? They lead. They get results. It doesn't matter what they do as long as the movement moves forward. Karl Marx was the leader of a movement. Was he not? You can even make a case that Adolf Hitler was the leader of a movement. But see, what's happened in our day and age, in our postmodern times, is that people who are out there, in church growth gurus and consultants, and people who are telling you how you can revitalize your church, they are fundamentally changing the role of a pastor. And they do not believe, and I mean this, they absolutely reject the idea that the church is an institution, instituted by Christ, and that pastors are office holders, and that there are clearly defined duties of the office. So let's read a little bit more. So the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, well, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Here we go. Qualifications for holding the office. All right? Must be above reproach. Husband of one wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Selah. Not a lover of money. When was the last time somebody was removed from the pastoral office for being a lover of money? Fair question. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit 
and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Those are qualifications. Here's the sad part. I can point to modern-day examples of men who do not meet these qualifications, yet are celebrity pastors. How is that possible? Well, one of the ways in which that has become possible is, well, you don't understand. He knows how to speak to the culture. He knows how to get results. He has a vision from God. And we're just executing his vision. And see, because we're growing so rapidly and we now have five multi-site campuses, that proves that he has a vision from God. And it doesn't matter that you sit there and say, the Bible says that he's not qualified. Well, if he wasn't qualified, then why are we having such miraculous growth in our church? Notice how the argument runs. It doesn't matter what God's word says. Our experience trumps God's word. Is that ever true? Does your experience ever trump the word of God? Does it matter if somebody gets quote-unquote results? Think about it. Titus chapter 1. Let's take a look at more of the qualifications. Titus chapter 1. We'll start at verse 5. Paul writing to Titus. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Here we go, qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Notice how this flows perfectly with 1 Timothy. For an overseer as God's steward. Catch that. What's an overseer doing? He's God's steward. He's got duties assigned to him from God. He must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And here's the fun part. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Just by a show of hands, does anyone here know of a pastor who's been removed from the office for not dispensing his duty of rebuking those who contradict false te- or true teaching. Any of you know it? Why not? Why are there not pastors being removed from office for refusing to rebuke false teachers? Scripture says they must do this. It doesn't say we suggest, you know, we the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we think it would be a good idea from time to time that a pastor do this. Scripture says he must be able to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict him. I don't know if a single man removed from office for refusing to do his duty of rebuking a false teacher, but I know a lot of pastors, or people who claim to be pastors, who say, listen, I'm not into that negative stuff. I'm about building people up. Think of Joel Osteen, okay, without laughing. Think of Joel Osteen. This is a man who is no seminary training. He's now the pastor of Lakewood, and he's not qualified to be such. And people have asked him, you know, why is your message the way it is? And he believes that God has specifically told him that his ministry is to build people up. Why do you not talk about sin and things like that? Well, I'm, I'm called to be a positive person. Well, if he holds the pastoral office, then he has a duty in that office to rebuke those who teach false doctrine. But then again, he teaches it, so he would have to rebuke himself. Seems kind of redundant. Um, And here's the reason why. Scripture says we must do this. For there are many who are insubordinate. They are empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. You can think Judaizers here. And here's what it says. They must be silenced. God wills that false teachers are silenced. Not me. Not Albert Moeller. God does. God wills for false 
teachers to be silenced. When was the last time a false teacher was silenced in evangelicalism? Usually death is the thing that silences them, right? They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. There's the money reference again. Things that they ought not to teach. Now Paul does something politically incorrect. Notice he, he engages in name-calling. Watch this. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Paul was politically correct, was he? Why should we? Because what's at stake are people's souls. So this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow. What's God's opinion of false teachers? They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Then why would we tolerate them when God says they need to be silenced? And silenced by whom, by the way? It's not just a general call for Christians to silence false teachers. The call is specifically given in the duties of the office of the pastor. That the job of the pastor is to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, and it is the job of the pastors to silence them. And the reason is simple, because God says the false teacher is detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Yeah, but you don't understand. Doctrine divides. It's so negative. I mean... We want to be positive, but, you know, we're not that kind of church, you know. We want people to feel included. We're into diversity, and what you're talking about kind of squashes diversity, you know. And, 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 and who are you to say that you're right? I mean, it seems so arrogant, does it not? But the reality of the situation is, is that that's backwards. When people start arguing and saying that you are arrogant because you believe what Scripture says, they're the ones being arrogant. And here's the reason why. Because the one who comes to Scripture and says, Lord, your word is truth, and I bend the knee, and my opinions will not be any different than what you have stated in your words. My words will not be my own. My words will only be what you give me, Lord. That's humble. That's not arrogant. Arrogant is saying... I know better than you, God. You don't understand. We live in the 21st century. And you, you can't expect me to get a raise at work and talk about Jesus and sin and forgiveness and blood and things like that. No, you know, you, you can't. You, no, 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 no. you got to understand, we're trying to grow our church here. Do you know how expensive it is? We, we've committed to a building program. And, you know, and if we don't keep bringing people in then what's going to happen is is that, you know, we're going to default on our building loan. And so we need to appeal to the broadest number of people possible. And and so we know better than you, God. We know better than you what to say. So we're going to say our words rather than your words, God. Is that not arrogance? Any pastor who speaks his words as if they're God's words, makes himself a God. Now the question is, is he a true God or a false one? Is he the one that we as Christians are to be listening to? Next point. Next passage. Acts chapter 20. So we've got this idea. There's the apostolic office. And no one fills that office now. No, there's not a single human being to fill that office. And there's the office of the pastor. The office of the pastor has qualifications. The office of the pastor has duties. These are spelled out in scripture. It's objective and we can all point to it and say, yes, this is the office. Here's the 
who should be in it, and here's what they're to be doing. It makes the annual review of your pastor pretty simple. Just open up the book of Titus and ask these questions. Is my pastor doing these things? And I would love to hear of a church that had a very stern conversation with their pastor. said, Pastor, you know, we think you're doing a fine job when it comes to visiting the sick and the shut-ins and praying for the needy and helping us with our community outreach. But we're, you're coming up short here on this teaching uh, sound doctrine stuff. And we can't remember the last time we heard you rebuke a false teacher because Jesus has made it clear in his word that he wants them silenced. When was the last time a pastor had a review like that? Why do they not? Because when we do our annual review of our pastors, we've come up with our own set of questions that don't even look at the fact that the pastor is in the office of the ministry and that there are duties according to it. Chuck the thing that you got from the HR department. Open up your Bible. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. Here's what he says to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Do you see it? Who is it that makes a pastor a pastor? The Holy Spirit. That's right. Now I'm going to say something explosive. That means that the pastor you currently have, if he was rightly called, ordained, and installed, God, the Holy Spirit, sent him. He's not your church's employee, and you don't have the freedom to just get rid of him after two or three years. Let's make that perfectly clear. The Holy Spirit sent him, and you are to treat him as a man filling a biblical office. I'm sick and tired of hearing of men who preach the gospel, who proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, correctly exegete God's word, and admonish sinners to repent and to be forgiven, who are driven out of their offices unbiblically. With the pretense that, well, we, the elder board, or we, the deacons, don't really like his tone. We don't particularly care for his message. He's not getting the results that we had anticipated. We were hoping to attract some more younger people. I mean, look how old we're getting here. And so we've decided on our own that we don't like our employees, so we're just going to can him and get another one. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In other words, the next time you have a vacancy in your church, pastor's resigned, pastor was hit by a bus, pastor took a call to another church, and there's a vacancy and you grab a call committee, and you guys sit down and you interview some guys and you decide you're going to extend the call to this guy to come and be your pastor. As soon as you do that... You have then become the means by which the Holy Spirit has called the man to your church. The Holy Spirit uses the call committee to call the pastor. And if he accepts that call, you have to consider all of that process, if you would, to be in divinely inspired. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Great passage regarding the deity of Christ, by the way. When was the last time that God bled, you know? Does God bleed? Well, it says here that he obtained the church with his own blood. God did. So that makes Jesus God. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings on the pastoral office. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare hotel rooms and rental cars visit our website fightingforthefaith.com on the side of our website you'll see our ad banners look at the ad banner for cheapo air and look on it there's a promo code write the promo code down click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the cheapo air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to doubt that the church is a movement and make you think that it's a divine institution, which would totally mess up this idea of vision-casting leaders. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's Roseboro's Ramblings on the Pastoral Office. These are a series of lectures, two lectures, uh, part one today, uh, on the pastoral office and how that impacts or how it helps us to understand and critique many of the modern manifestations of ecclesiastical structures that are not biblical. Here we go. I know that after my departure, here's what he says to these pastors. So notice what he's saying to them. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves. Pastors. That's what he's saying. From among you, pastors, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears, and now I commend you to God into the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance 
among all those who are sanctified. Some very important words there. Number one, we know who calls pastors. The Holy Spirit does. We know that the pastoral office is an office. It has, well, qualifications and duties. We know also that Paul there warns that fierce wolves will arise. And who are the ones who are the wolves? Other pastors. Yeah, do we ever worry about, oh yeah, I heard such and such a layman is teaching false doctrine. That's pretty easy to take care of, by the way. The pastor just needs to visit said layman and basically say, you're teaching false doctrine. You need to repent or we're going to discipline you. But it's a whole other thing when it's a pastor preaching false doctrine, is it not? It's a little bit more difficult to deal with. That's why the devil, well, let's put it this way. Let me back up a second. The real front lines in Christianity is the pastoral office. I'll be blunt. That's where the real front lines are. Because if that's an office, the Holy Spirit sends men to fill that office. There are duties for that office. The devil knows, listen, how many Christians are there? Lots. How many pastors are there? That's a smaller group. Let's focus on the smaller group because if you can flip a pastor, you can flip a congregation. Something to keep in mind. So we know that God calls them, Holy Spirit calls them, that fierce wolves will arise among pastors, teaching twisted things. Oh, and by the way, you know, the, the sheer sign that somebody is a false teacher, do you know in the ancient days, you know what they would call different heresies? They would name them after the person who taught them. Okay, the Arian heresy, named after Arius, right? The, 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 the heresy of Sibelius, named after Sibelius, right? Yeah, that's generally how it goes. Nestorian heresy, named after Nestorius. Why? Because false teachers, they teach unique things that are unique to them. And if you can start saying, well, that person's teaching, well, an Ostinian theology. Right? Could we not describe Ostin's theology as Ostinian? Right? Back in the days when the emergent church was around, we could talk about McLarenism. Rebellionism. I like the way that sounds, right? Because false teachers, they don't point people to Jesus. False teachers always draw away converts after themselves. They're the person who has the inside track. They're the person who finally figured it out. They're the person, yeah, you got to be careful with that kind of stuff, right? Next passage. Just by way of supporting documentation, if you would. Scripture interpreting Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a passage that talks about spiritual gifts. But it also is kind of important because it tells us something about the pastoral office. We're all familiar with it. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. Here are the words. And God has appointed in the church. Oh, okay, here we go. God's appointed. Here we go. In the church. First, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. And then Paul asks the question, are all apostles? By the way, the answer is no, but uh, that, I'll have to save that for a different time for lecturing. But notice here, who is the one who has appointed apostles and teachers in the church? God is. God is the one who has appointed them. So when you run your pastor out and treat him like he's just a French fry cook, fast order guy, and you don't like his employee performance, understand this, you're contradicting the fact that God is the one who's appointed that man. Something to consider. Now, if you, ha if there, you have no biblical grounds to get rid of him, I'll be blunt. You're sinning when you get rid of him. If he has not had a moral failing and doesn't teach false doctrine, and you decide to run him out... You are opposing the man that God has placed in that office. And that is sin. It needs to be repented of. And unfortunately, it's institutionalized in denominations across the country. And it needs to stop. It's one of the reasons why we have such a problem here. Because many of the good pastors have been run out on a rail so that we can get some hip guy who thinks he knows how to talk the lingo of the culture. Because we want results. Romans 10. This is an important thing. 
The scripture says, Romans 10, verse 11 is where I'll start. The scripture says, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. This is a great gospel message, by the way. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To which we say, Amen. Right? Jesus told the church to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that he has commanded. Well, in order for that to happen, there's got to be men who are sent with the message. And here's what Paul then says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? It's a legit question. Is this not why we are sending missionaries to unreached people groups? Because they have not yet heard the good news that Christ fled and died for their sins. So we send missionaries with the message. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? The answer is they can't. How are they to hear without someone preaching? How can they hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? God sends preachers. So that people will hear the good news that Christ bled and died for their sins. So they'll be brought to penitent faith in Jesus. So that they will be baptized, receive the Lord's Supper, hear the words that their sins are forgiven. That they may have comfort and assurance, grow in their knowledge of the truth, have their minds transformed by the word of God. The means by which God has chosen for this to happen is through Ordinary men preaching God's words. And I think we have lost sight of this fact. That this is a God-ordained, God-instituted office with qualifications and duties and a mission. And the mission is uniquely and inextricably linked to the Great Commission itself. How can people hear how can they believe if somebody isn't sent? And yet we just read that God is the one who appoints. God is the one who sends preachers. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So, that's foundation. So here's the idea. You got the biblical foundation. Anyone here not convinced that the pastoral office is an office? I've shown this from scripture, right? Anyone here doubtful as to whether or not God sends pastors? No, I've not seen any doubt in the room. You guys must all be some kind of modernist or something, right? Good, you're not embracing doubt and uncertainty. Okay, so we have this as our basis. So what we're going to do now is we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at Kind of some problems in evangelicalism. So we're going to do this in two parts. I'll, I'll go for another 15-20 minutes today, and then tomorrow I'll pick up where I left off. Does that make sense? All right. And so we're going to segue here. Now that we've got the biblical foundation, we're going to do some comparative work. And I'm going to start by giving a quote that is attributed to the old um, church father, St. John Chrysostom. It's attributed to him, although there's doubt as to whether or not he said it. And back in the day, pastors there were called priests. So here's what he says. The road to hell is paved with the skulls of erring priests with bishops as their signposts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds to me like back in the days of John Chrysostom, there was a problem that where there were many erring pastors who were preaching things they ought not to preach. Paul warned about that. So this is a phenomenon that goes all the way back to the beginning of the church. Now, I, if, if I could, without really coming across as being arrogant, I would like to add an addendum to John Christostom's quote. Okay? So here's my reworked version of it. The road to hell is paved with the skulls of erring priests with bishops as their signposts, and the final miles are paved with the skulls of vision-casting leaders with church growth consultants leading the way. Was that controversial? It's going to get more. Let me read to you a quote. You must change the primary role of the pastor 
from minister to leader. There's a quote. What's the difference? Well, in leadership, you take the initiative. In ministry, you respond to the needs of others. Listen to this quote, okay? I'll tell you who it is in a second. You must change the primary role of the pastor from minister to leader. What's the difference? In leadership, you take the initiative. In ministry, you respond to the needs of others. That is a direct quote from Rick Warren. Now, here's my question. Just kind of consider it an oddball question. I mean, everyone knows I'm a Lutheran. So the idea is, is that, you know, Lutherans, you know, they, they say things that are just unkosher. But where did Rick Warren get the authority to change the primary focus, warp and woof, if you would, of the pastoral office? Where did he get that authority? I don't see a commission from God for him to have to be able to do that. And yet he has taken it upon himself. And that was from the, uh, the book, The Purpose Driven Church. It says that we must change the primary role of the pastor from minister to leader. Hmm. So let me read. Over the last three decades, there has been a major shift in evangelicalism as it pertains to the functions of pastors. And with the rise of the seeker-driven movement... Notice I said movement, not church. Secret-driven movement. And the modern megachurch, a new ecclesiastical model has been developed and deployed. Unlike the pastoral office outlined in scripture, with its emphasis on the functional roles of preaching the word, ministering the sacraments, this new ecclesiastical model utilized in evangelical megachurches emphasizes visionary leadership. And preaching that intentionally eschews exegetical verse-by-verse messages in favor of sermons that instead address the felt needs of unbelievers with the goal of growing churches by making the church irresistible to unbelievers. Both the pastoral office, as laid out in scriptures, um, and the new visionary leadership model developed by the Secret Driven Movement are defined functionally But the specific functions of these two models could not be more different. And so I'm going to examine the seeker-driven movement's leadership model, its functions, its goals, and compare and contrast that to the functions of the pastoral office as defined by Scripture. Now, we'll start by taking a look at shepherd to CEO and or missional leader. Have you heard that word missional? I'm not sure what that means. You know, every time somebody says the word missional, I think of that line from The Princess Bride. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. All right, so when one thinks of a pastor, one often thinks of the term shepherd. The two terms in many people's minds are practically synonymous. Pastor, shepherd, they go together, right? But shepherding, I don't know if you know this about shepherding, it's not efficient. And it doesn't get the immediate bang-for-your-buck results that many of today's church growth consultants and gurus are pushing for. So therefore, the idea of slow, patient, tedious, care for, and protection of, and feeding of sheep, well, is a term and a concept that is not only despised in the seeker-driven movement, it's openly rejected. Now, an example of this can be found in Andy Stanley's 2007 Christianity Today Leadership Journal's article titled, Get It Done Leadership. Get it done. Oh, yeah. You know, those pastors, they just never get it done, do they? Well, it's not their job to get it done. Their job is to preach the word. I thought it one waters, you know, one plants another waters, and it's God who gives the growth. Does this sound biblically familiar to anybody here? Right? But get it done leadership. We know better than God how to get results. Right? So in this uh, Christianity Today article, they actually interview Andy Stanley, and he openly disdains the idea of a pastor being a shepherd. And his reasoning sounds like many of the arguments used by old mainline liberals in their attacks uh, against, the, against particular biblical doctrines and moral uh, precepts that are revealed in Scripture. Here's what Stanley said. He, the question that was put to him, here's the question. Should we stop talking about pastors as shepherds? That's the question. Here's what he says. Absolutely. That word needs to go away. 
Now, just think about that for a second. How can the word shepherd go away when it's inscripturated? That's a fancy term for meaning it's in your Bible. You know what I'm saying, right? That word needs to go away. Here's what he says. Jesus talked about shepherds because there was one over there in a pasture, and he could point to it. But to bring in that imagery today and say, Pastor, you're a shepherd of the flock. No, I've, nev- I've never seen a flock. I've never spent five minutes with a shepherd. It was culturally relevant in the time of Jesus, but it's not culturally relevant anymore. Nothing works in our culture with that model except this sense of a gentle pastoral care. Obviously, that is a face of church ministry, but that's not leadership. Now, oddly enough, I agree. That isn't leadership. Shepherding isn't leadership. It's care. It's patient care. It's a lot like, well, taking the seed of the word of God and planting it and watching it grow all by itself, not knowing how it does it. First the blade, then the fruit, and then the and then it's time for the harvest. I don't know how it works. It's kind of slow and tedious. I don't know this if you've noticed about sinners, because I am one, so are you. We kind of learn at a slow pace. Sometimes God has to take a big stick and beat us with it. Right? Yeah, think about it. How many of you have learned your greatest life lessons at the bottom Right? The idea of curbing sin, having our minds transformed and renewed and our lives sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the preached word, takes a lifetime, does it not? Sometimes I think I'm more sanctified and other times I think I'm just old and tired. But see, that's not leadership in the way that Andy Stanley's talking about. Because Andy Stanley... He's a major leader in a network that's basically in charge of a movement. And they're all about getting results. We need nickels. We need noses. We need buildings. Do you know how much it costs to fill our smoke machine every week? And we want to get that new rock and roll laser light display. These are very expensive things, and we need leadership to get things done so that we can get people here, so that we can get those things, so we can get more people here. He's right. (laughs) Being a pastor is not a leader, if that's what you mean by leader. So the next question to Andy Stanley. But but, but isn't shepherd the biblical word for pastor? You can almost see the (laughs) person asking the question going like this, right? Here's what Andy Stanley said. That's a first century word. If Jesus were here today, would he talk about shepherds? No, he would point to something that we all know and we'd say, oh yeah, I know that. I know what that is. Jesus told Peter the fisherman to feed my sheep, but he didn't say to the rest of them, go ye therefore into all the world and be shepherds and feed my sheep. That's a weird exegetical argument. Now notice he said that Jesus told Peter the what? Fisherman. He told the fishermen, feed my sheep. Seems a little self-contradictory, does it not? No, it's culturally relevant. Jesus would never use that word. Then why didn't Jesus say, go and catch fish rather than feed my sheep? Right? By the time of the book of Acts, Andy Stanley says, by the time of the book of Acts, the shepherd model, it's gone. It's about establishing elders and deacons and their qualifications. Shepherding doesn't seem to be the emphasis, even when it was. It was, a, it was cultural. It was an, an illustration of something. Huh. I see. This, again, I, I notice I made the claim very early here as we got into this portion of it that this sounds a lot like mainline liberal arguments. It was, let me digress here for a second here. Scripture says that women are not to hold pastoral office. They're not to be teachers in the church. They're not to be an authority over men. Oh, that was culturally relevant at the time. We can, we can ordain women now. That was, that was a cultural thing for then. This is the 21st century. We have smartphones now. 
Jesus didn't expect that by the time we had smartphones that we would continue to keep women from in the, being in the pastoral office. So we're just going to ordain them now. And as soon as they get into office, what do they want to do? They want to ordain homosexuals. It's weird. You, know, you bring the women in first and then they bring in the homosexuals. It's strange how that happens. right? Same arguments, by the way. Bad ones at that. That brought women into the pastoral office in the mainline churches with the exact same arguments being used to ordain impenitent Homosexuals. All right, so back to our Stanley thing. So, like, I, let me comment here. If shepherding was only a cultural illustration of something that Jesus was trying to emphasize, as Stanley postulates. So, the question immediately arises in one one's mind: What then was Jesus trying to emphasize? Just a cultural illustration. So, what exactly was Jesus getting at? Well, here's what Stanley says. What we have to do is identify the principle, which is that the leader is responsible for the care of the people he's been given, that I'm to care for and equip the people in an organization to follow Jesus. But when we take the literal illustration and bring it into our culture, then people can make it anything they want because nobody knows much about it. In other words, what Stanley is saying, is that a leader understand that he or she has been tasked with the job of caring for and equipping people to, quote, follow Jesus. So the model employed by the leader in Stanley's way of thinking, well, it's not bound to any biblical norms. Instead, Stanley believes that a church leader could legitimately employ the CEO leadership model used in the corporate world, or whichever model seems best suited to meet the needs of a church in any given cultural context. No joke. Said Stanley, one of the criticisms I get is, quote, your church is so corporate. I read blogs all the time. Bloggers complain. That's right. Those guys who live in their mother's basements sit on bean bags in their underwear, drinking Mountain Dew and eating Cheetos. Those poor guys, they just need to get married, you know, and get out of the basement. Uh, those bloggers, they complain. The pastor's like a CEO. And Andy says, okay, you're right. Now, why is that a bad model? Here's what he says. A principle is a principle, and God created the principles. So here's what he's done. He looks at Scripture, and he quibbles about the word shepherd, says, oh, that's cultural. And then he employs the CEO model based on this idea. Jesus was getting at a principle, and as long as we're being faithful to the principle, we can employ whatever ecclesiastical model we want in any particular cultural context. And don't sit there and tell me there's this thing called the office of the pastor that there's qualifications and duties of. No way. In fact, the way Andy Stanley reads the Bible when it comes to the pastoral offices, he opens it up, closes his eyes, and goes, Nope, I don't see any office here. Right? That's how he's doing it. Here's what he says. Oh, principle's a principle. God created all the principles. So what's the principle behind the CEO model? Follow me, follow we never works, Andy Stanley says. Ever, it's follow me. God gives a man or a woman the gift of leadership, and any organization that has a point leader with accountability and freedom to use their gift will do well. Unfortunately, in the church world, we're afraid of that. Has it been abused? Well, of course. But to abandon the CEO model would be silly. I would say to adopt the CEO model is absolute arrogance. By what authority do you have to change the office of pastor into a CEO? You don't have any freedom along those lines. He then says this. Churches quit saying, oh, that's what business does. The whole attitude is wrong and it hurts the church. In terms of the shifting culture, I, Andy Stanley, say thanks to guys like Bill Heibels and others who... Who have been unafraid to say we have a corporate side of our ministry. It's going to be the best corporate institution it can possibly be. And we're not going to try to merge first century. The church wasn't an organization in the first century. They weren't writing checks or buying property. The church has matured and developed over the years. But for some reason the last thing to change is the structure of leadership. Now, just a simple question. Is Andy Stanley, are his ideas 
okay with what Scripture reveals regarding the pastoral office? No. And see, that's the problem. He assumes it's all about the principle of leadership. As long as we're faithful to that principle, it doesn't matter what we do. As long as we get results. But if you take a look back at the passages that I showed you, they clearly reveal there's a pastoral office, there are qualifications to hold it, there are duties and responsibilities of that office. God himself is the one who sends men into that office, and the Holy Spirit is the one who puts them there, calls them through the congregation. We have lost sight of this very important biblical fact that God's word reveals an ecclesiastical model, and deviating from it has caused many of the problems that we are seeing in the church today. And I'll tell you more about that on my next lecture tomorrow. Thank you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.